0: Hi, I'm Sean Eckford, member of the Board of Directors here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily podcast, and this is sadly the last one for this year's festival. I finished off the Day 2 podcast mentioning Charlotte Gray's Hutchinson Lecture. She talked about a handful of the people that she chose to highlight in her book, The Promise of Canada, 150 Years, People and Ideas That Have Shaped Our Country. And one of them, of course, was particularly on point for a literary festival.
1: And the second of the people I want to talk about this evening is Margaret Atwood, who emerged during the exuberant nationalism of the 1960s, the decade when this country got its new flag, hosted Expo 67, and elected Pierre Trudeau as prime minister. So you see, I had read and enjoyed several have heard novels while I still lived in England, but it was not until I arrived here in 1979 that I realised quite how sharp her observations were. As a very young woman, Atwood thought that the Canadian sense of identity was needlessly shaky. She realised it was time Canadians looked in the mirror and recognised that they were different from English-speaking peoples elsewhere. And she set about addressing this challenge by looking at Canadian fiction. In 1972, she published Survival, a thematic guide to Canadian literature. In the introduction, she wrote, I'm talking about Canada as a state of mind, as the space you inhabit not just with your body but with your head. She contrasted the themes that run through American and British novels with those that run through novels by Canadian authors, and she pointed out, our stories are likely to be tales not of those who made it, but of those who made it back from the awful experience, the north, the snowstorm, the sinking ship that killed everyone else. The survivor has no triumph or victory but the fact of his survival. The survival theme reflected the enduring anxiety back then about Canada's identity. Now, much has changed since then, and today's CanLit has moved far beyond sinking ships and sick beds. Today's bestsellers by Canadian novelists are as likely to be about China or Ukraine as about grisly shipwrecks or relationships with bears. But Atwood did more than simply prove that a Canadian author can both illuminate the national psyche and win a huge international audience and to do it with a wit that totally belies the caricature of Canadians as humorless. She also nurtured the growth of Canlid by being a founder member of the Writers' Union of Canada, the Writers' Trust, Pen Canada, and several other organizations. Trudeau talked about Canadians being there for each other, and Atwood was there for Canadian authors. And this wonderful festival, along with similar literary events across the country, owe a lot to Atwood and her generation of writers who fought for the intellectual space to be Canadian.
0: 9 a.m. Sunday morning is not when you expect to fill a 400-plus seat venue, but Sunshine Coaster Robert Moore did it this morning, holding the audience spellbound with the story behind his book, On Trails, an exploration. There was a big line to chat with Robert and get a book signed afterwards, and I couldn't help noticing a stamp he was using so naturally that was the first thing i asked about
2: what's with the stamp people always ask the, the stamp is a mountain ram that i got in this little bookstore i mean a sort of little stamp shop in the east village uh that just sells stamps and i've always wondered how they stay in business so i have always wanted to buy something from them so i was thinking about doing these signings and my handwriting's not very good so i thought well i'll jazz it up a little bit with a stamp of a ram because it's obviously a trail walker, but also because uh, they're my initials. Robert Austin Moore. Aha! Oh! Okay. A
0: little, that's, well, that's a, deep, a deep secret now. There we go. We've gotten into something substantial. Um, obviously, given the amount of time we've all uh, have been waiting and uh, the line you've got, you uh, you found your tribe a bit early this morning, didn't you? I did, yeah. I was a little
2: worried that it would be too early for some people to come. We might have some people with hangovers in the audience. But uh, I think it, was, it turned out really nice. It was really nice vibe, the light in the room was nice, it's calm and peaceful, it's good for sort of contemplative
0: talk like my own, so it worked out well. What is it uh, about this topic that you think is resonating with people so much?
2: Well, the nice thing about trails is that there's a lot of applicability, there's a wide applicability. So, some people come to it for the hiking, obviously, but others come to it for the science aspects. Uh, You know, ant pheromone trails are a topic of great fascination for some people. And then a lot of people who write to me say they found more Uh, sort of the contemplative metaphysical aspects of it the most enthralling, so looking for their path through life, looking for their religious path, their spiritual path, or their philosophical path Uh, that's surprised me the most that that people connect with it on that level, and it's really rewarding to me
0: Let's stick with science and nature themes that have local connections. Mark Laren Young tells the story of the killer whale who changed the world in his latest book and I caught up with him after the event and I started out by asking him about his obsession
3: I first heard the story of Moby Doll, oh, early 1990s. I don't, I've, I'd have to look to check the year, probably, like, 93, from Paul Watson. And the moment I heard it, I thought, I've got to tell this story. I thought, I, I, well, I couldn't believe I didn't know this story. I thought, here's this story about this, the first ever killer whale displayed in captivity. It was, it happened in my hometown. How in the world do I not know about this so I actually tried to give it away I mean I, I kept going to people go somebody needs to do this somebody needs to do this and that somebody turned out to be me and I just stuck with it for 20
0: years does it end is there an end point in sight? will you still be obsessed when you're you're done with the film when when this book has run its course well the is crazy there more?
3: that's the crazy thing is that it feels really never-ending because part of Normally, I've got a freelance writer's attention span, which is slightly better than a Hummingbird's, but only slightly. And I will finish a book, or I will finish a movie, or I will finish a script. Done. I've learned about that. I've always been a bad freelance writer because I'll become an expert in something and go, that was interesting, moving on. And as soon as I finished this book, I went, okay, what's my next whale book? Right? Right? Like, I just... I, I became so obsessed that I went... I don't think I'm ever going to be done telling stories about whales. So
0: <laughs> We'll have to talk about uh, Kinder Morgan as well because you, you gave the issue a bit of a shout-out at, at the end of your presentation, but it, it really does tie to the whole uh, issue around uh, our, our orca population, doesn't
3: it? Well, here's the thing. The official report on Kinder Morgan says that if everything goes perfectly, if it, everything goes perfectly, Absolutely, 100 percent, according to plan, on the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion, that it will cause significant adverse effects to the Southern resident population. And I spoke with scientist after scientist after scientist, and I said, "Can this population survive significant adverse effects?" And they all said, "No." So what that means is the Kinder Morgan is the Kinder Morgan's own, the National Energy Board's own report basically admits that if everything goes right this will cause the extinction of the southern resident orca population and i think that's unforgivable if anything goes wrong good luck to all of us
0: now i'm not following good podcast etiquette if i don't give you a chance to plug your podcast on our podcast that's so awesome tell me about it
3: uh, our podcast is called scanna uh with two a's so scan and uh it's on itunes it's all about orcas, oceans, and the environment. And we had the most phenomenal launch where, for a brief little while, if you looked on the natural sciences ratings on iTunes, we were fourth right behind NPR, How Stuff Works, and some guy named DeGrasse Dyson. So we've actually had some real interest in the podcast. We had some amazing guests. Our current one is Alexandra Morton. We've got Laurie Marino, who's leading the Whale Sanctuary Project, coming up. Uh, Launched with David Suzuki and talked to the whale. Who talked to the lawyer who represents the whales? Plus, so.
0: how perfect is it to have a podcast about pods?
3: Yeah, right? I originally just wanted to call it podcast, <laughs> and, and everybody's like, "That's just too subtle." Hard a joke. to search. Yes. Well, that's what it, that's what we realized was it was unsearchable. So, I, okay, we'll just make it the Scanna Podcast.
0: For many, a Sunday is a day of contemplation. In that did bring some discussions about difficult themes here at the festival today. Sandra Martin's engaging session based on her book, A Good Death, Making the Most of Our Final Choices, obviously struck a chord with our audience, who may or may not have agreed with Martin's opinions, but did seem to agree that we need to stop avoiding the questions. The difficult conversations continued when David Robertson took the stage to talk about his graphic novels and other works on topics around residential schools and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls.
4: And that's what we've been talking about, like for me today, is we've been talking about reconciliation. Because what I think that is, it is sharing our knowledge, being knowledge seekers, understanding our role as teachers to others, and sharing that knowledge after we've been taught, and healing collectively. Because reconciliation doesn't happen between a father and a son. It could happen between my dad. It's not just that. It doesn't happen within a family, it's exclusively. It doesn't happen only in a community, it happens in a country. And to do that, we need to have a conversation. And to have a conversation, we need to be educated. And so I'll ask you the same thing I ask my, the kids that I speak to, and my own kids and myself, is to think about what role you have in that conversation and how you're going to get there. Because the destination is somewhere we all go together, right? And so my role, I think, has been writing these books. Your role might, might be as simple as reading a book to your grandkid or your kid and having a talk with them. And that's, that's powerful, That's making a difference, and that's reconciliation.
0: On our first two podcasts, you heard some segments that included interviewer Catherine Gretzinger, who was on stage for three events with Joy Kagawa, Pat Carney, and Amber McMillan, and today's new voices with Ava Crocker and Clea Young. When I finally had a chance to talk to Catherine and compare some notes about interviewing, the first thing I wanted to know was how she approaches it differently when it's live on stage. Everything is different about being on stage as opposed to
5: being in a a studio or in a situation where you're recording because um, you're having the relationship with the person that you're talking to And then you're having a relationship with the audience and you're trying to manage your expectations for what you want to do with the interview. The interviewee's expectations of what's coming next and what's happening between the two of you. And then the expectations of the audience, which is why when somebody behaves badly in the audience or something kind of goes off the rails, you're stuck thinking, how am I going to continue to kind of keep this intimate relationship with the guest, which is the premiere thing, and keep this performance piece um, alive at the same time. So it's it's pretty big. <laughs> it's challenging.
0: Now now in, in a festival uh, context like this, in what we're doing here with, with authors and what we're trying to do with them, how do you sort of see your role in, in working with the authors on stage? What are you trying to do for them as the facilitator for lack of a better word.
5: I'm trying as a as a facilitator and it is kind of a, a, a type of facilitation is trying to meet the author where they're at and trying to think about what they want out of this experience. So some authors want the journalist or the interviewer to take them someplace. Some authors want to deeply examine the work that they're doing. Some authors want to create an experience on the stage and want the interviewer to kind of follow them wherever they go. Um, Plus you're dealing also with the creative vision of whoever's behind the festival. So I'm always very aware that somebody like Jane Davidson has a sense of what she wants and why she wants it. So there's a reason why she would put me with Joy Kagao on the stage or me with Pat Carney and, and Amber McMillan together to try to manage that or me with new voices. What is her intention? How do I execute that? And how do I do it in a way that is comfortable for, for the writer? So writers are solitary people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes they're They're really happy to be out and talking about their work. And sometimes they have no idea why they do what they do. They just do it. And so when somebody's drilling at them and asking them these questions, it can be a little bit awkward or a little bit destabilizing. So I always have to remember that my journalistic sense of discovery has to sort of play second fiddle to the comfort of the guest and making sure that the person who has the story to tell gets to tell it in a story that makes sense to them.
0: Okay. Now, is that a special challenge <laughs> when you're doing something like New Voices with authors who maybe have never been in an interview situation of any sort before?
5: Yeah, it is. And and I think um, there's so much expectation. I was m- most anxious this weekend about interviewing Clea and Eva, um, not because I was intimidated or frightened, but, but because I really wanted to do a good job for them um, because they've put so much of their hearts and souls into their work. I wanted to make sure to respectfully question it, talk about it, share it, introduce it to the audience um, so that they could feel like they were heard in that room. Um, you know, dealing with an author who's been out in about a million times, you, you kind of There's a bit of a rote process sometimes. Mm -hmm. With these guys, it's all new. So you want it to be good. And you want them to feel um, empowered. Or not empowered, that sounds a bit wishy-washy. But you want them to feel confident going forward that somebody seriously thought about... um, wondered about their work and has tried to have a relationship with them on a stage in front of 400 people, um, that is meaningful and real. Um, so that's, that's challenging. And they were wonderful. Oh my gosh, they were wonderful. They're so talented to, to have that
0: talent. Holy cow. What's well, always, that's the always the amazing part of the new voices you come away thinking I probably learned more than they did yeah, from this experience.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something about the, the clarity of, um, Clea's observations about relationships and the, the, the ability to create space and stories that I saw in Eva that I would, I would love to learn one day. And, and I learned a lot by reading them.
0: Okay, I have to get you to put your professor hat on now for, for the, the last question. Because obviously you were up here asking a lot of questions and you got to see the audience ask a lot of questions. Advice for audience members when they sh- when they ask a question.
5: They should ask a hard-working, open-ended question. They should pause and think, what do I want to know? And then they should ask their question. Um, they should ask one question at a time. Uh, they should not ask a question that drives a guest into a box. They should ask a question that opens a window. Um, the same kind of things that I tell my students. I was
0: gonna say, that seems like awfully <laughs> familiar advice. <laughs>
5: yeah, it's interesting. In my events, it wasn't so much this year. People tended to ask a question. They would make a brief comment and then ask a question. In some events, people stand up to tell their own story, and I don't think that's particularly helpful. Um, It's supposed to be about the author that's on the stage. So just remember, the event is about the author that's on the stage. The luxury of having an open microphone and being able to ask a question is to ask one that other people will benefit from, not just you.
0: As I sit here wrapping up this final festival podcast of 2017, many of our guests are enjoying a special Sunday salmon dinner and getting ready for the closing event, Sherry Ulrich with Julia Graff and Kirby Barber. It's possible every generation in our audience knows a slightly different Sherry Ulrich. Hyde Pumpkin, The Hometown Band with Valdi, UHF with Bill Henderson and Roy Forbes, solo LPs from the 80s and 90s. Here's a taste of her with one of her more recent collaborations, BTU featuring Ulrich, Barney Bentle and Tom Taylor. And I'll leave you with that to close out our series of podcasts for the 2017 Festival of the Written Arts to find out more about About the festival, keep in touch with the news coming up for 2018 and anything else you want to know, maybe some pictures, see if you see yourself in some of our photo galleries, check out writersfestival.ca.